Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technology. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and today you will hear from a British surgeon who decided to leave clinical practice and first worked as a consultant for McKinsey, then took on the role of an Associate Director of Transformation at St. George's Healthcare NHS Trust, and today, Benedict Evans works as a VC at InHealth Ventures, an early-stage fund for healthcare startups. Ben shared his journey through all these different roles and how a medical degree helps him evaluate solutions today. Enjoy the discussion and if you're an early stage startup looking for funding, go to InHealth Ventures website since they are in the middle of a funding round and are still looking for approximately five companies to invest in. The link is in the show notes. If you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episodes automatically. Coming up next are several interesting topics, among them an episode about digital health in Germany, a series about digital health in South America, and many, many other interesting things. Stay tuned and browse to all the episodes wherever you get your podcast or on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com where you can also find the recaps of all the shows. Now, to Ben. So, Ben, I've talked to many doctors uh, that became entrepreneurs, but not that many that would become full-time investors. So tell me a little bit more about your journey towards this role from the initial trauma and orthopedic surgeon position. Yeah, so I started out um, on the clinical side, trained at University College London in London, went through initial general medical and surgical training, and then on to, to trauma and orthopedics. I loved my experience and career as a doctor but as I as I progressed I realized that certainly being a surgeon wasn't for me for the long term. Why is that? Honestly I, I don't think I had a passion for it. I I enjoyed the initial stage of learning how to do particular procedures but I realized I actually probably preferred speaking to and engaging with patients that were conscious uh, rather than operating on patients that were unconscious for any surgical career because it, you know it is the core of what you do i wouldn't say at that stage i was you know ready to wash my hands of a, a medical career necessarily but i was keen to try other things uh, and i'd always been interested in in you know, aspects around business and, and operations and so on so i, I worked at McKinsey um, in in London and then subsequently in uh, the US and, and broadly worked in healthcare throughout that period. You know, management consulting was probably always uh, a means to an end rather than the end in itself for me. I, I I saw and spoke to people who said there was a huge lot of value, huge amount of value for particularly for doctors who were you know, trying to transition into into business and and could spend a few years there just getting a, a fire hose of, of information and, and techniques and frameworks and so on that would be useful over the long term. But I think my eye was always, particularly in the US, uh, as I, you know, what was going on in healthcare at the more innovative early stage of, of, of things. I was able to meet with a lot of early stage founders at that point, which was back in 2012, 2013. And that kind of had me hooked. I actually, I had a go at starting up a, a company, a healthcare analytics business. Uh, I spent time in a healthcare analytics business separately as a, as a, as a 
yeah, part of the team, but uh, tried to start up my own thing as well uh, over in the US, but um, didn't work out. Struggled to, to sell into hospitals, learned a, a lot of hard questions, but ultimately ran out of money. So you kind of learned about the entrepreneurial side firsthand. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it was something that went on for 12 months, uh, the business. I didn't get to the stage of, of, of building it out and, and building out a team necessarily, but certainly learned some of the harsh lessons around you know, how challenging it is to sell into to healthcare institutions. From a personal family point of view, I think that was probably the one go I was going to have because before long I, you know, had a mortgage and a, a first child, and and I think it was a situation where, despite wanting to to continue to to work in the early stage environment, it it just felt like it wasn't the right thing to do at that time. And the the VC side of things had always interested me. I, I guess I'd naturally read about it, and so I, I was lucky enough. I mean, so much of it in this space is about luck and timing, and so on. I was been actually working in the hospitals as a manager for a period at St. George's and, and was exploring interviewing opportunities at, at funds and, and came across InHealth, who were starting a fund in health ventures. And Let's talk a little bit more about the transitions that you made. I'm sure that there's a lot of doctors that are, you know, stressed out, burnt out. It's a known problem. So um, many probably think about other things that they could do with their medical degree. There's tons of things that you can do. But how does that transition actually happen? How did that look like in your case, like going from the medical practice to McKinsey's, where he worked at for four years. Sure, I mean, I it was probably a path less trodden back then, and I think there were two, but there were two typical pathways. It was either, either well, through three maybe it was either banking, uh, consulting, or, or going to do an MBA. At that point, I had no idea what an MBA even was. As I go back to that time, you remember as a clinician, as a doctor, as a medical student. In many ways, back then you were you were so focused on on that, that kind of career pathway that. Um, some of these other concepts were were just pretty alien. Uh, you know, I guess I, I was proactive in reaching out to lots of people, tried to get feedback from others that had made that transition. But ultimately, you know, I, I just had a general feeling that I, I was kind of late 20s. I wasn't going to get many opportunities to to just take the plunge. And so I kind of just went for it without looking, to be honest. I, I just, I, I, the beauty of it, you know, when it comes to working as a doctor is you can continue to locum as a doctor and, and therefore, you know, you can, continue to get an income, but but have more flexibility in terms of planning what you're going to do next. And, and so, you know, that's what I did. In 2014, I think, you became the Associate Director of Transformation at St. George's Healthcare NHS Trust. So, so you went back to work in a hospital, not as a surgeon, but to develop, um, head up trust-wide program responsible for the, for delivering savings uh, across clinical operations, workforce, infrastructure, and IT. So I'm really curious to hear uh, how did you find that role? You know, suddenly you had to convince clinical staff to change, to embrace also digital transformation, I assume. So... Yeah, it was a huge transition for me. Um, having been in management consulting at a, at a, a firm where you you experience one aspect of, of consulting with these types of companies, uh, sorry, these types of, of, of entities such as hospitals around operational improvement and strategy and so on, to actually being on the other side. Um, I, I was at a point in my life where I felt I'd learned a lot um, in in my experiences post being a doctor and I kind of wanted to give something back and I felt this was, this was a chance to do it. Um, 
and it was it was really hard. Someone told me going into it that it would be the hardest thing I'd ever do, and I thought, you know, how's that possible? You know, managing the NHS versus you know pulling all nighters at McKinsey or or uh, you know operating on on patients doing on calls and so on. But it but it was really tough uh, for a few reasons. I think first of all, managers work incredibly hard and, and but, but don't get a whole lot of respect mm-hmm. from the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that is something you have to deal with. And, and, and so much of, of your ability to change things and, and, and gender improvement is, is really about trying to influence people as much as anything. Rather, there's, 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 no, there's, no, there's no power there. So uh, it, it is, you know, you learn uh, how to sell things and, and how to convince people. I think secondly, you know, St. George's was going through a challenging period right now. Right then, uh, like a lot of hospitals, it was you know, struggling financially. Um, and in terms of the clinical challenges it was having as well. Um, and so there were a lot of management consultants that came in during that process. Uh, and it was fascinating being on the other side of it and being the, the employee and having management consultants coming in telling you how things should be done. You know, I found that by turns interesting and also frustrating. But a realisation that, uh, you know, as a management consultant back then, how little I, I really knew and, and, and empathised and understood what, what it was like for, for people in that position. But it was it was hugely rewarding because you, you ultimately you are contributing to something that's really important in terms of improving a, a hospital within the AHS. I particularly enjoyed, I think it's probably a thread that's run through my career around using data to try and uh, deliver improvement, whether in patient care or in cost efficiency, operational performance and so on. And so, you know, working with clinicians during that period, using data to help them understand how how they were working, the implications of the decisions in, in clinical practice um, had on patient outcomes and, and cost and quality and so on. That was really fascinating. Um, and it was generally an arm wrestle and it was generally you know, pretty fraught and it was one step forward, two steps back, but ultimately satisfying. Can you mention any examples of what you managed to implement? Because when it comes to the digital transformation and especially IT, it takes a very long time to implement it on a hospital level. We are not talking months, we're talking years uh, for systems such as EHRs or electronic prescribing and medication management systems. So, um, yeah, uh, how did you see that as someone who's been in the medical practice and now had to convince people why new solutions are great and also you now have the insight as an investor of how it is when startups are solving one single problem you know so then you have the doctor in the middle and thousands of solutions that are solving thousands of little problems and while each problem is an important problem I imagine that from the doctor's perspective it's like not another thing that I need to learn or change or um, use. Fully agree. Uh, hospitals uh, and healthcare organizations in general are incredibly busy uh, and everyone is time poor um, and everything needs to be done now. Um, and so in that environment, it is challenging to get people to think about the longer term and how they change their behaviors. You know, even when it comes to digital solutions, so much of the impact is actually about culture and, and human behavior. You can have the best software solution in the world, but, but if, if, if fundamentally people aren't 
adapting it because they're not willing to change their particular routine, then then you're going to have issues. And there aren't many levers you have to get people to change, particularly clinicians to change the way in which they work. In the US, it's easier because you've got, you've got money. There, there, there are financial incentives uh, that can be used either at a, a kind of government level or at a local level to to help push people in a particular direction. But within the UK, the NHS, you know, it, it is more challenging. I think what you have to do is just really focus on, you have to accept that it's going to take time. You have to focus on those those champions, those early adopters, those who are interested and excited by a new technology and use them to really role model these new behaviours. And, and and on that basis, over time, others will be brought around to it and, and see the value in it. So much of human behavior is just driven by the story and so you can use all the numbers in the world and all the data to, to try and convince people but ultimately it often just comes down to just having a clarity around why you're doing this and why it's important and, and who benefits from it but in it's known that it's also important who delivers that message you know if a consultant is going to tell other doctors the same thing as someone from the IT team uh, in the hospital, it's like a 50% at least different effect that the message will have. So what was your experience in that regard? I mean, you did... Yeah. You... Fully agree. I mean, it's certainly having a background as a doctor was really helpful. You know, I guess I was seen as, as maybe like-minded, not not necessarily the, the other of the manager or, or, or whatever, but but also, I think because you, you can just understand, you can again, you can, can empathise, you can you can you can talk in a similar language. It's why management consulting firms hire a lot of doctors uh, to do healthcare work. Yeah, I think it's been an asset throughout my career. I mean, it, it, going back to medicine, you know, people often say, well, maybe it could be seen as a waste to you know study for six years and then practice four and a half years and and then to 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 not progress after that and to do something totally different. But yeah, you know, I saw it as a. Uh, a phenomenal time where I learned a huge amount, and, and actually a lot of those lessons have, have been you know, incredibly valuable as I've progressed into uh, into you know, other aspects of my career. Given that you were involved in the U.S. healthcare system, can you make any additional comparisons in terms of technology adoption and opportunities for digitization of healthcare between U.S. and U.K.? Because they could not be more different in terms of how the system is structured. The U.K. is a public tax-based system, whereas the U.S. is extremely fragmented, tons of intermediaries, tons of insurance companies. So uh, you mentioned before that it's easier still um, in the US because there's more financial incentives and maybe you can add yeah. anything to that? Yeah, as you said, the US is very different. I mean, fundamentally, there is a profit motive in, in US healthcare and it is a huge market, $3.5 trillion, uh, the US market. There is a lot of scope for, for companies to build big businesses in it. There is a, a, a real need because, you know, healthcare accounts of something like 20% of GDP in the US. The distinctions I would say is, is certainly from a mindset point of view, it's, it's probably a more American thing rather than necessarily a healthcare thing, but you know, American tend to be highly entrepreneurial, be willing to take risks and and be willing to get things wrong and try again. And I think that, that certainly was something I experienced in healthcare. I mean, obviously you have to be careful in healthcare around how you experiment and patient safety is, is key, but, but ultimately... Yeah, there was a willingness to try different models of care. A lot of work was done, particularly as part of the Affordable Care Act, to to drive and incentivize the adoption of electronic healthcare records by the meaningful use. And there was 
I think, I, I guess, an ecosystem on the tech side, early stage in San Francisco and Boston and New York, that then bled into healthcare and so led to, you know, a much more vibrant, much earlier, much and now much more mature uh, environment for, for starting companies. On the flip side, yeah, I mean, there are you know, tens of millions who are uninsured or underinsured. That's a major, that's clearly a huge problem. And there were times at which, where we were focusing, where some of the companies we, we saw were focusing, um, what we see now are focusing, is not necessarily the most important thing when it comes to when it comes to um, how you make healthcare better uh, in any mm-hmm. system. And so, you know, that that ethos within the NHS of, of healthcare being a, a human right, and uh, it, it's it's not to be um, discounted. Uh, it's a hugely important thing. And certainly, I remember. When I left management consulting and didn't have insurance in the US, you realize how how important it is, um, this fact that you can get health uh, care at the point of use. I think there are definitely advantages to both systems. I mean, it'll be exciting to see over the next few years how the NHS continues to innovate and continues to try to draw in and create a, a, a more welcoming environment for, uh, for founders. You mentioned an interesting thing, which was that even if you have a solution that might benefit uh, healthcare and make healthcare better, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good investment opportunity or that you can make money of it. So, you know, from that perspective, I wonder when you look at startups that come to you, uh, what do you look for when assessing the go-to-market strategy and the relationship between the customer and the customer traction that a specific company has, because perhaps your solution is targeting the users uh, and the users love it, doctors love it, but that still doesn't necessarily mean that the hospital will be willing to pay for that or that the insurance is going to be willing to pay for that. So what's your advice in that regard for startups? Yeah, healthcare Organizations are highly complex, um, and, and I guess the first thing to say is it just takes time to to work out exactly what your optimal go to market strategy is, uh, and and how to position the product, and 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 how to uh, deliver value, and who the right market is. I guess fundamentally, what I say is there's a lot of uh, incremental value that can be brought to the healthcare. Just really simple things like you know automating a process within a particular aspect of procurement or HR or, or some clinical pathway that's currently done with paper and pen. But the willingness, their willingness to pay for that and your ability to capture value uh, as part of that uh, is challenging. You know, you might in the short term be able to create a, re- a set of revenue streams, but over the longer term, A, it can be replicated and B, you know, it's questionable as to how significant that market will be from a, from a price point of view. Um, clearly, the ability to replicate it will mean that your, 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 uh, the competition will, will drive your price down. So I, I think the result of that is, is we, we do look for companies that, first of all, deeply understand the problems that they're solving and they, they, they understand the areas in which they're operating. And so they understand some of those aspects that you talked about, you know, the, the, the differing incentives across users and buyers and decision makers and what insurance will pay for and what it won't pay for. Are generally trying to solve you know, significant problems. So they are re-engineering pathways and processes. They are um, really driving uh, change across a, a whole workflow. Um, they're not necessarily point solutions that they're looking to, 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 
create. They may start there, but their, their focus over the long term is, is, is extending across the whole value chain. What that does is it makes it hard to shift you once you're in there, once you're embedded in there. Uh, and at that point, you can you can start to capture value because um, you have that moat there. You have that ability to 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 a large extent manage pricing power, um, ideally. And then the hope is that you can you can scale on that basis, and you have a product that is scalable, uh, a sales process that's scalable, and you're operating in a market which which means that you you can generate really significant revenues uh, and a really large business. But as I say, that that takes time, and, and the best entrepreneurs and the best teams still are learning the whole time and are, are constantly refining how they approach that. And so, I guess you know, to answer your question, you know, it's part data and part you know leaps of faith based on the quality of, of the team you're looking at and, and the area in which they're operating. Just to stick to this a bit longer, when a team comes to you, when startups reaches out and you have to assess them, what's the most important thing that you look at? Because we all know that, as you said yourself, startups evolve, they may pivot, the pitch that they give you, the predictions in terms of revenue are close to made out of thin air so you know it's uh, so what do you look at is it the the passion of the team is it the traction that they already have even though the solution might not sound too exciting what what kind of is the deciding factor for you i mean it is a combination of things but fundamentally a lot of it comes back to the team and it comes back to a as i said do they understand the area in which they're working the problem that they're solving you know have they gone to the you know, either through experience or having gone through the process of really deeply analyzing it do they have a a very clear view and, and you know are they teaching me things about it that i don't know do they have a balance of skills commercial clinical operational technical because they're all important particularly on the commercial side it's very easy to you know, not think about go to markets early on and it's hard to sell in healthcare so you want to have somebody who who has an emphasis towards that And are they executors? I mean, it's a long road to build a significant business. You're talking 10 to 15 years in healthcare. So if you do have some cornered resource and some particular network that's going to mean that even if others come along and others will inevitably come along if you're doing well, they just, they just can't. And I think it's those factors. And, and, and ultimately, you have those and, and you, you're going to be pretty confident ultimately that there's a the potential to develop a, a great product um, that people will pay for. In your opinion, from the doctor's perspective, what do you see as the biggest challenge currently facing uh, digital health companies or also perhaps your portfolio companies? What I have in mind specifically is the fact that by today, the regulation of digital health apps and the compliance with privacy security, those things have been more or less outlined. The problem is that the, today there's so many solutions that in the end, even if a solution is certified, in the end, I think a lot still depends on personal recommendations. You know, similarly, as we talked before, when you're starting with the digital transformation in a hospital, you need trusted consultants or medical staff to convince other medical staff, you know. So um, from the combining your knowledge of how doctors think and now combining your advisory role as an um, investor to the your portfolio companies, What do you see as the biggest issue in that regard? I generally see regulatory 
hurdles as as key, very important. But if you are, you know, structured in the right way and you are sensible, then you can you can overcome those. Um, you know, even as they change as digital health develops, the challenge is obviously the longer term evidence based generation that that you need to do. And I think it's again, it's easily dismissed and assumed that if you get regulatory compliance boxes checked, you're 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 at the races. But yes, a large part of it is, is as you said, kind of KOLs and having a network of clinicians that are willing to vouch for you and 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 deploy your your solutions. But actually, the, the large picture you think about scaling is, is how do you actually generate an evidence base? And, and typically, you need to have not just retrospective trials, but prospective trials. And that takes time and it takes money. And so, and can then combining that with, will people pay for it once I get to that, once I demonstrate the evidence? It, it is tough. And, it's, and again, it's stuff that has to be thought about early. And it comes back to capital efficiency and working out your go-to-market strategy from day one. Uh, so are you currently investing? Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're in the middle of the fund, and startups can still yeah. turn to you. That's right. Yes, yeah, we are. We've got a lot of dry powder um, still to to invest. How did COVID impact your thinking in terms of what makes sense to invest? Are you now in a tougher position that you were before? Because I'm sure that perhaps even more startups are reaching out to you, seeing the opportunity yeah. of the current crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I, I see that as a positive thing. I think it's great to have people starting companies. Um, and I think, you know, what we are seeing, what we're hearing from portfolio CEOs is there is an appetite to engage with digital health companies from the hospital and, and, and broader healthcare customer side that wasn't there before. So I think there's this, this halo effect maybe from the, the, the telehealth adoption that's led customers to realize and clinicians and administrators to realize actually these types of solutions aren't bad and they can they can provide a lot of value. And that is drawing new entrepreneurs who maybe wouldn't have focused on it to begin with, new investors um, and customers in. I'm very much very excited about it. And I think it is it does feel like an inflection point um, that we're hitting now, uh, which has been a, a while coming. Two more questions that I'm sure some of the listeners are going to be interested in are um, when looking at companies, are you specifically looking at UK-based companies? And the second thing, when is the fund closing? So how much space do you have for how many startups? Sure. So in terms of geography, we're pretty agnostic. The portfolio currently uh, spans the US and the UK, uh, but we look across Europe and we I met companies from from Asia and uh, uh, and other parts of the world. In, in terms of the, the the second question, you know, we're probably looking at uh, another five potential companies um, over the next twelve to eighteen months, uh, maybe a bit more, um, as we uh, as we look to, to close out this particular fund. What are the minimum uh, minimum requirements? It very much depends on the team and the technology. The earliest investment we've done was, you know, based on a, a PowerPoint presentation uh, by a highly experienced team that had a track record of, you know, building and exiting great businesses, uh, and that, that's that's kind of an easy decision to make. Uh, more typically, I think on the on the more kind of software SaaS um, non-clinical aspects uh, of businesses, we are looking for for evidence of traction, and and on the more clinical research life sciences side you know we, we take regulatory risk we go in pre-fda pre-ce um and, and there it is fundamentally more about 
know, the team, the the way in which they've executed, the data they're showing, the early, even if it's early, and the market as we see it as it develops. Um, any expectations, plans, predictions that you have in terms of digital health development in the next, I think a year is a good prediction given the current unpre- mm. unprecedented okay. times. I think we'll continue to see a lot of seed deals being done uh, and some later stage investments being done uh, and potentially some, you know, IPOs, um, maybe a, a fair few compared to previous years, just because I think the public markets are, are doing pretty well right now. Uh, and, and I think there's probably a realization amongst a lot of later stage CEOs that there's a risk that on the private side, there is less capital around. I think you, you might continue to see a, a bit of a challenge at Series A, Series B with companies that haven't totally proven out their business model. And it might be harder to raise and there might be lower valuations as a, as, a, as a result of that. And I guess given that healthcare will have to be delivered now in a very different way, kind of broadly, you know, at least I would imagine for the next 12 months, as far as possible away from the hospital, if you can, um, and therefore in the community, in, in the home, you know, a lot of exciting work that can be done around how to support that, how to create an infrastructure for that and, and solutions uh, to deliver that in an optimal way. So you know, that's certainly an area we're really excited about. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you liked the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast. This is the fuel for the show and helps others interested in digital health find the show as well. To browse through past episodes and find more about the podcast, go to www.facesofdigitalhelp.com. And of course, stay tuned.